ways. Well, let's go to our God in prayer. Father in heaven, we just give you praise for this opportunity to be here. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word, to sing praise, to lift up holy hearts in prayer, to offer confession in our own hearts, to submit ourselves before you. Uh, this is worship, and we come before you to worship you. And so I just pray that you bless this time. Father, we think of, of our brothers and sisters around the world right now that are worshiping as well. Some huddled in rooms, some in large churches, some in, uh, out in the countryside. We know in places like Ukraine and in China and Iran, uh, many places all around the world that uh, your people are suffering right now. And so we just pray that you would bless them this day. And I just pray in particular that, that the worship that they experience later on this morning uh, and as they gather throughout this week, that it would just be sweet that they would be encouraged by your word and comforted, that, um, that they would edify one another. Uh, Father, we pray that um, you would glorify and honor yourself in the church this day. Amen. Keith and I were talking before the service. I, w- I was telling Keith, um, I wasn't planning on telling this story, but it just seemed to need to do it. So um, when I was doing an internship down in Texas, uh, a lot of us were teaching for the very first time. We hadn't been in front of uh, youth groups or large crowds before. And so, uh, as you can imagine, the first time you get in front of a crowd and you, you open up with God's Word, um, you have all this training from Bible college or training from all the things you've been doing at the church, and, and then you speak publicly for the first time, and oftentimes it's pretty hor- horrific, uh, a, a terrible experience. And so... Um, I was telling Keith as we were going through the sermon today that um, you know, we're going to have to figure out you know, if, if I need a sign or not, whether things are going well or not. And so I was telling him that the uh, youth pastor used to get up in the back of the room and he would kind of stand in the back of the room and, and when things were really not going well, I, I remember looking back a couple times and, and there he's back in the back doing these motions. And I thought, what in the world is the youth pastor doing? He looks like he's trying to fly in the back of the room. And then I read his lips and he was telling the, the intern up front who was teaching that day, Land it! Land it! So Keith is officially in charge today of letting us know if we need to land it. I was thinking after I shared the story with him that uh, there's really no need because we're in the middle of a sermon right now. We're, we're in part two uh, of a two-part sermon. Last week we, um, we started this uh, third warning passage in, in Hebrews. And, and I have to say, uh, you have made this, um, this a, a success. I, I have been so overjoyed at some of the conversations I've had with you this week. And some conversations in passing, some of you just sharing what you're learning. And I left you with a challenge last Sunday. I said, I, I want you to, I'm not going to give you all the answers, and, and I want you to wrestle with the text, see what you find on, in your own study. And with several of you, we've, we've been uh, just interacting over this past few days, and, and you've been sharing with me about some of your study. And some of you are just searching some commentaries, you're reading the text, you're, a lot of you are really just working through the application of it, some of you are digging into the grammar and the words of the passage, uh, and so I am encouraged to hear so many of you really taking a look at this warning, and, and I see that you're, you're listening to the Spirit, you're listening to what the Spirit shows you, uh, and He's showing you places where we might find some sluggishness in our walk with Jesus, and I'm just thankful to see how you're applying that in your life. And so, um, so even if we need to land the rest of this sermon, that's, it's already gone really well in my mind just because 
you are applying it in, in a profound way, and that's encouraging to me. Well, let me briefly take us through what we uncovered last week. We're in the middle of Hebrews chapter 6, as I mentioned, and we're in the process of grappling with probably what is one of the most difficult passages of the New Testament as far as, you know, how do I, how do I apply this? How do I interpret this? What are the different views? And, and certainly throughout the church, throughout church history, and if you read a plethora of commentaries, you'll see there's, there's several different views on on what, what's going on here in Hebrews chapter 6. And so, uh, again, it's encouraging to me to see how you've been working through that. But just a little bit of, refre- of a refresher of where we've been. Uh, we discovered this last few verses of chapter 5 that the author of Hebrews, he, he basically interrupts himself. He started a new section and he says, okay, we're going to talk about Jesus being the high priest. And almost as soon as he gets started, he says, okay, wait a second. I can't keep on going. You're not ready for this. And he rebukes this Hebrew church, these, these believers, because they had grown sluggish. He basically states that, that he wanted to, dis- to discuss the high priesthood of Jesus with them, and he wanted to talk to them about some things that were hard to understand, but the Hebrew church had become dull of hearing. They were stuck on the ABCs of Christianity. And we saw how there's a time and a place in the Christian life where we need that milk of the Word, like a, a baby needs milk. But, but in each of our lives, if you, if you stay, on, stay on the bottle for the rest of your life, uh, you're never going to grow. You're never going to mature. In the same way in the Christian life, if we stay on the milk of the Word and we just focus on the, the basic doctrines of Christianity, as good as they are and as much as we need to review those things, we're not going to grow. And so to delight in those basic principles of the Christian faith, but there is a point in your walk that you need to be weaned and start eating some solid food. And so, as a follower of Jesus, each one of us should be in hot pursuit of growing in this relationship with our Savior Jesus Christ. Growing in maturity, pushing forward and challenging ourselves. Challenging ourselves to think deeper about our God and to enjoy the mystery of who He is. And the more we know Him, the more that mystery unfolds itself. Growing in our application of God's Word. Growing in, in our, our, our good works as, as, we, as we walk before Him as, as His workmanship. And so that brings us to the second movement of our passage, which is the third of five warning passages throughout the book of Hebrews. In chapter 6, verses 4-6, through six, he says this, For it is impossible... In the case of those who, and we'll look at here in a moment, have experienced a relationship with Christ, it is impossible for those who have experienced this relationship with Christ and then have fallen away, verse 6, to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm. And so that's the big question, isn't it? That's a tough, tough one. You look at that and go, yeah, how do I work with this one? What's he saying there? Last week, we started to look at the context of this very bold, very hard warning. And my argument to you is that this is a warning that should, it should get the attention of every single one of us, but it's a warning for believers. It's a warning for Christians. And every single one of us should be asking ourselves, am I in danger? Am I in danger of what he's saying here in Hebrews chapter 6? Does this describe me? Or does this describe me in any way whatsoever that I might be getting close to that line that I would be in danger of what this warning is telling me of? 
And in the bulk of last week, we spent, uh, really, we, we left Numbers, and we spent most of our time in the book of Numbers. I said we left Numbers. We left Hebrews, and we spent the bulk of our time in Numbers. And we saw this warning passage heavily draws from, from the experience of the Israelites that were in the wilderness. God had redeemed the Israelites. He saved them. By faith, they went through the Red Sea. They worshipped Him. We see over and over and over again, this is a redeemed people. This is a saved people. Not every single individual in the nation was, was a believer, but as a nation, they had believed in Him and they worshipped Him. And so He saved them out of Egypt. He took them out of the prom- to, to the Promised Land where they were to go in. And just like He had led them through the wilderness, just like He had led them through the Red Sea, He had led them to Mount Sinai and showed them all these marvelous things. Just as He delivered them in every single instance and showed that He could take care of them. To show, showed them that He was powerful enough. They were to trust Him. They were to go into the land no matter what they found there to, and know that, that they could go in trusting Him and, and, and then He would deliver. Specifically, we took a look at four key events that happened in the life of the Israelites on their way to Canaan. And in these four events, God demonstrates His love to them he demonstrates his power to them, and he shows that he can lead them into the land. And it was those four events that Hebrews compares to what God has done for you and I as a Christian. It, it, those four events he compares to the, to the experience of these Hebrews that the author of Hebrews is writing to. In Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 6, the passage outlines these four experiences of the believer, four things that God has done for you if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Number one, in the case of those who, once, who have once been enlightened, he says, the Israelites experienced what was called the pillar of fire that covered them and gave them shade. And this pillar of fire, it tells us it led them by night and it gave them light by night. Now we also have also been enlightened as we saw last week. God has lit our way. In the Gospel of John, right at the very beginning, John chapter 1, verse 9 the, 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 um, the apostle tells us the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Just a few chapters later, Jesus Himself declared in John chapter 8, verse 12, he, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows Me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Paul challenged the believers in Ephesians. Chapter 5, verse 8. For at one time you were in the darkness, but now you are Light in the Lord. You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And then right here in Hebrews, echoing, echoing, well, excuse me, echoing part of Hebrews, Peter writes, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. And so all through the New Testament, we find that as believers, we, we have been gifted with the light of the world and, and He has actually made us to be lights to go out into the world. And I believe that when this morning passage, it, it, I believe that it's talking about true believers. He, Hebrews isn't just talking about people who have heard the Gospel and they've, they've been exposed to the light, but they still haven't received the Gospel yet. Throughout the New Testament, those who are, are enlightened are those who who have come out of the darkness. Just like those who have been given life are, are no longer spiritually dead. You're either dead or you're not, right? And, 
And, and the same picture goes with the light as it's used in the New Testament. You're either in the light or you're in the darkness. And so if you've been enlightened, you are walking in the light. You are no longer in the darkness. And then later on, right here in Hebrews itself, it's going to use the same word that he uses here in our passage about being enlightened in chapter 10, verse 32. And in that context, there's no doubt that those who are enlightened are those who walk in the light, those who are believers. And there he says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. And he talks about the experience of, of going through hardships and persecution as believers. And so in Hebrews even, that same word is used, and it's used of believers who have been enlightened by our God. And so the Israelites, they had the benefit of this glorious pillar of fire that, that led them by night. And it enlightened them, literally. How much more have we been given in that we have been given Jesus Christ Himself who brought us out of spiritual darkness and even has made us lights to go out into the world. The second experience is that we have tasted, we are those who have tasted the heavenly gift. The Israelites went out and they tasted what every day? Manna, which means, what is it? They tasted manna every day. God provided for 40 years. They they, they didn't have any food, and their, their granaries had run out. And so every day they walked out of their tents, and there was, what is it on the ground? And they picked it up, and they scooped it up a certain amount, and they, they had it for their family. They partook in bread from heaven, literally. And they gathered it every morning for 40 years. But what about New Testament saints today? Have we tasted the heavenly gift? And Jesus says, absolutely. Remember what He said in John chapter 6? They, they were talking about bread from heaven. And they are talking about in the context of manna and God providing for the people. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger. A few verses later, He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Do you see the picture He's using of Himself? He says, I'm the manna. I am the gift from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Now there are some who have suggested over the years that perhaps this is just talking once again about those who have tasted of Christianity, but they haven't truly experienced salvation. They've tasted the heavenly gift, but they haven't fully experienced Christianity yet, some would propose. Uh, but that's not how, not how this word is used elsewhere. The idea to taste something, it means to fully experience it. It's like this. Have you ever smelled the aromas of Thanksgiving dinner? Grandma's making turkey and ham and sweet potatoes and everything else that comes with it, all the fixings. And, and you're in the house and you start smelling everything as it's cooking in the oven. And uh, you go munch on a couple black olives um, or, or uh, pickles or whatever it is that, that Grandma has out for the kids. But you smell everything else and you're, just, you're hungry, you want some. Has, has Grandma ever told you you know, this year you can smell it and you can watch everyone else eat it, but this year you can't taste it. Anybody ever been there? Okay, none of you were that bad of a grandkid. That's good. No, no, Grandma never does that. She lets you, she's going to let you taste of the feast with everyone else. And when you've tasted it, you didn't just get the aroma, but you fully participated. 
and you savored it. And that's the picture of this word here. It's, it means not just smelling it, not just what is that, but, but fully experiencing it by tasting it. Same words used back in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, where we learn that Jesus tasted death for everyone. Same word. So, let me ask you, would you have the hope of eternal life if Jesus had just sampled death? If they put the nail to His hand and Jesus looked over at it and said, uh, ne- no thanks, never mind. Um, that's enough for me. I've tasted enough. I'm going to pass on this one. Thank you very much. The hope of our salvation would be lost. If Jesus had not fully participated and tasted death, then you and I would be lost in our sins. And in the same way, we have fully participated in the heavenly gift, Jesus Christ. There's a third experience in that we are those who have shared in the Holy Spirit. And Hebrews is, I believe, alluding back to the experience that we talked last week of the Israelites. Right before they came to the land of Canaan, they came to Kadesh Barnea, and a couple chapters before that, they had the experience of 70 of their elders upon whom God poured out His Spirit before Israel came to that promised land. And it was a sign. It was a sign that God was working among them. And just like He had been on the mountain and Moses had gone up the mountain and the one time the elders went up there with them and they saw, they saw heaven opened. Now out here in the wilderness, God was still doing a similar thing and not just pouring His Spirit out on Moses, but He was also pouring it out on, on these, these leaders of Israel. And so it was a sign that God was showing them before they came to the promised land. It was a sign that He was working among them. And it should have just been one more affirmation that they could trust Him. That, that whatever they faced, whether there were really Nephilim in the land, whether there were really giants there, whether they, they really should be scared of the things that they were about to face, that God was greater and that whatever they faced, they could overcome. And so when they saw these, the Spirit poured out, it was a sign to them that God was doing something in their midst. How much more have you and I become partakers in the Holy Spirit than those in the wilderness. To share in the Holy Spirit, it means that we are partakers in Him. The, the word carries the idea that we are partners with Him. The, the word partners to share, it, it's, it's used of a business partnership. Somebody that you trust. Somebody that you work with. Somebody that you're close to. The Israelites had an experience of the Holy Spirit, but it was only 70 of their leaders and Moses. How much more have we become partakers in the Spirit? in that we who have every single one of us who have believed in Jesus Christ, each one of us have been baptized with the Spirit and we are in Him and He is in us. There's a fourth experience in that we are those who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Remember how the Israelites experienced that? They received the law up on top of the mountain. Moses came down with these tablets and then he, he received the law there at Mount Sinai. And the Israelites received God's Word and they witnessed the miracles that God performed. My friends, we too have also received God's Word. Not only in the written Word, but also the living Word, Jesus Christ, God's Son. And we are the beneficiaries of God's power in our lives today. Just in the one truth alone, even if He didn't perform any other miracles, even if the apostles hadn't performed anything and Jesus hadn't shown any miracles, if the one miracle was that your sins were forgiven, that would be enough. Our God is good. 
And our God is great. And we're just getting a, a, a glimpse of, of the, the power of the age to come. God's power was attested through signs and wonders that the apostles performed that gave evidence of the power that He had, he had come to take away our sins and to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. And so how much more? How much more have we tasted than even the Israelites did? Who weren't allowed to come near the mountain, but you and I, what are we allowed to do? Walk right into the presence of our God. Heaven is open for you and me. And we can come and pray and ask Him anything, not just as servants, but as as sons and daughters. And so those first four descriptions are true, I believe, of every Christian. But then Hebrews adds a fifth statement. And this fifth statement is a warning for us. And he says in verse 6, and then have fallen away. It's a horrible statement. It's an awful statement in light of the four things that have come right before it. It is impossible in the case of those who experienced all of this, have been enlightened, who have tasted of the, the gift from heaven, who have received the Spirit, who have tasted the Word of God and the power of the age to come. In the case of all those who have experienced all this, it is impossible that then they have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Well, it's a warning. I believe it's a warning for us. But that raises some questions. And that's kind of where we left things last week, wasn't it? It raises a lot of questions. So what, what does it mean then to fall away? What, what does it mean to be impossible? What, what kind of repentance is in mind here? What, what, what does this talk about re-crucifying the Son of God? And what kind of judgment is He referring to in the following verses? And so I want to keep those questions in your mind. We're going to answer those one at a time. Um, but I, I think it's only fair to describe, first of all, how others have viewed this, um, this third warning. As I've mentioned, and as you've found in your own study, this is one of the hardest passages to unravel in the New Testament. And there are many brothers and sisters in Christ who have done a lot of work studying this passage. They have different opinions about this passage. They love Jesus. They love God's Word. They're fully committed to the truths that are in it. Uh, these are Christians that I, that I love, that I highly respect. I have their commentaries and their books and, and their sermons on my bookshelves and on my computer. Um, I'm rather convinced of one view myself, but when Christians throughout history haven't come to consensus on this passage, it's wise for us to remember two things. Number one, it's wise for us to remember that, number one, we need to remember that God's Word is truth. And, and there is only one true interpretation, and that's the interpretation that God intended for His audience to hear. And so, because God reveals truth, we should seek after it like hidden treasure. I know there's a lot of people that go, oh, this passage is too confusing and nobody can understand it, so uh, I'll leave that to somebody else. I, God invites us. He doesn't, he doesn't say He's going to share everything with us and that we're going to have 100% and, and full knowledge. We're not God, right? So we should pursue it. Look, look for it like hidden treasure and, and seek to know what, what you're able to because God does reveal Himself in His Word. But number two, we also need to remember that our minds are not perfect. And there's much wisdom in approaching passages like this one with a great amount of humility. And so I'm going to share my view with you today. 
but in no way I'm saying that I'm better than anybody else or that I've picked the right one because I'm smarter than the others. That's, that's not the case. Um, together we'll look at God's Word and, and, and see what we find here, but um, we also need to approach it with humility, knowing that there's other people that we love very much, that love Jesus Christ very much, that uh, don't always agree with us on some of these tough ones. So let's look at the five. The first view is that this warning passage is talking about those who have connected to Christianity but have not yet repented of their sins. So already you know this isn't my view since I've just taught you everything different than that. Um, but um, a lot of the people I, I love very much, some of the commentators that I usually are my go-tos, just when I have a struggle with a passage and going, okay, what, what's their take on this? Um, a, lot, a lot of those commentators hold to this position. Uh, these commentators do believe that this is referring to those who have tasted but not fully experienced. So, um, so they're going to interpret some of those sayings that uh, we just looked at a little differently than I've explained to you today. And, and the warning is, is that you can, you can put off a relationship with Christ, but there comes a point where God hardens your heart and your opportunity for repentance has passed because you've gone... You, you, you were given enough enlightenment and, and you still rejected the Gospel and so you were without excuse. Now, while I don't believe the passage is necessarily teaching this, I do think that that's a reality that does happen and that people, they put it off and they put it off and they put it off. So, you know, I'm going to enjoy life and I'm going to live it to the fullest and, and I'm going to wait till my deathbed and then I'll ask Jesus in my heart and I'll get that golden ticket into heaven. And, and, and the Bible does teach us that there does come a point where God does harden the heart. And sometimes that opportunity is lost. Sometimes death comes without notice. And so um, you don't want to be in that point where you've rejected the Gospel because you will be without excuse. Now there, again, there are many who have taken this interpretation. And I, again, I have great respect for many of those who do. Uh, my opinion after having studied this text is that the author of Hebrews is talking to Christians. Not those who are still deciding. And I think I've explained why I think that already. So we won't go further there. The second view is that the warning passage uh, is for believers and that Hebrews chapter 6 is describing the possibility that, that a Christian can lose their salvation. We are helpless without Christ and He saves us completely, but if a Christian walks away from their faith, then, then while nothing else can take their salvation away, uh, some would suggest that if you do the walking away, that, that you can lose your salvation yourself that you can uh, reject Christ and thus you are condemned. And there comes a point, some would teach about this passage, where there's a line that's crossed and there's no room for repentance to come back. Now the strength of this view, um, would, Danny, would you mind just give me a glass of water? Or a Angie? Never mind, she's already ahead of it. Forgot my cup today. Now, the strength of this second view is that I, I believe it, it really recognizes that this passage is describing true, true Christians. And so, uh, while, while others have to try to explain some of these verses away, and they take their theology and then maybe do some work with the exegesis of it, um, I think those that hold this view, uh, the, um, they have, um, they, they've dealt faithfully with that part of the text. Uh, I believe that the weakness of this view is that it contradicts several other passages where God states that those who are His shall never perish. That nothing can separate the Christian from the love of God. Not even one's own sin. Not even myself. Um, 
Now, we can't go into great detail today because the topic of today's passage is not the perseverance of the saint or eternal security, but if you would like a few verses to chew on and consider, I've included them in your notes. I I thought about just spewing them out, but if you really wanted to look at them, I figured it would be better if they're just right there in front of you. Uh, Of just a few passages to consider as as you consider that. Uh, I believe that, uh, and and I teach that, those who are in Christ are secured by Him. That we are held in God's hands that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And, and if all of that is true, and, and we serve a God who holds us, that, 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 that does leave some questions in our passage, but I believe that um, we are secure in Him. Third view is that Hebrews chapter 6 is talking to the community as a whole. That this isn't a warning for individual Christians, but that it's a warning to the whole Hebrew church. And so the warning is, if, if you as a church don't do this, then you're going to face uh, what it's talking about here in this passage. Now, the strength of this view is that it does recognize the role of the book of Numbers. We've looked at Numbers, and we saw how that community responded, and that community fell, and the whole community was disciplined. And so, so there is some strength there, but the, the problem is, um, and I don't know too many who hold this position, but the greatest weakness is that in in the very next few verses, the author of Hebrews makes a distinction between believers, uh, and he, he in fact comforts some of the very people that he just warned, recognizing that even some others might fall away. So, uh, so the context itself, I think, um, doesn't shed much for that, passage, that, that view. The fourth view is, is one that I find very appealing, actually. Um, I, I read a sermon by Charles Spurgeon uh, on this passage last week, and it was one of the greatest sermons I think I've ever read. Uh, his position, and the position of many others like him, is that Hebrews chapter 6 is hypothetical. That the, the view recognizes that these first four experiences that we've talked about are talking about Christians, uh, but the falling away in verse 6, they would say, is, is rhetorical. This is a sermon, and so it's a rhetorical device, and he's trying to get their attention um, and, and basically, the idea is this: if if Jesus, excuse me, if you could walk away from Jesus, then what would save you after that? If you could experience the Spirit's enlightenment, and that wasn't enough, then who is greater than this God that could provide something bigger than He already provided in Jesus Christ? If you could fully participate in Christ and participate in the Spirit with a partnership with Him, but these things fell short somehow, there is no second crucifixion. There's no second repentance. There's no way to be saved from sin if we can walk away from this great salvation. Uh, Spurgeon preaches that a lot better than I did. But um, the, the view expresses the doctrine of the perseverance very well. Perseverance of the saints very well. And it, it preaches really well. And additionally, it does recognize the context of Hebrews in which the whole point is that Jesus is superior, right? He's better than all these other things that we try to substitute for Him. And if He can't save you, then who can? But as much as I like Spurgeon's sermon on this, the, the problem is, is that uh, it, it makes a whole point of, of the warning kind of redundant. And so... If this is all hypothetical, then the warning isn't really a warning for anybody. Uh, it's just a rhetorical advice, device for a sermon. There, there's a few other, other views that have been um, taught and, and commented on. Uh, 
that kind of fall between all these other views, but that, that's kind of the scope of it. But there's a fifth view that I'd like to unpack in the time that we have remaining. In essence, the fifth position holds, and what I teach, what I believe, is that this warning is a very real warning. It's a very real warning for me. It's a very real warning for you. It's a warning for Christians who, who cannot lose their eternal life. But you and I can lose eternal rewards. You and I can become the subjects of God's discipline. Not just some arbitrary thing out there that, uh, big deal. A very real discipline from the hand of our God. Even to the point that God sometimes brings physical death as a consequence for those who are sluggish in their faith. Because God says, I'm not going to let you make a shame of, a mockery of me anymore. And here's the reasons why I hold that view. First of all, um, the idea here is that there's no turning back. That there's no second repentance. There's no turning around. And this should remind us of what we talked about last week, which I think is the book of Numbers is really what he has in view here as he's walking the Hebrews through these things. As we look at the book of Numbers, the Israelites, they had been saved. And, and they had experienced God's power in the wilderness. But when they came to Kadesh Barnea, they came to a point that they had refused to move forward. Now, remember what he's talking about here in Hebrews. He's, he's just rebuked them in the passage right before this about those who have become sluggish. Some of them were getting into this mode that some people still get into when they, they, in, in today's world where they think that they can just coast through the rest of Christianity. That they've gone 10 or 15 years and they've served faithfully, they've studied faithfully, they've, they've done what God's want them, God wants them to do, but for this next 10 to 15 to 20 to 30 years of their life, they can just coast to the end. There's this idea that all the work, all the growth, all the study and the memorization, that everything I've put into for the first bit of my Christian walk, that somehow that's going to provide a reserve, a reserve so that I can just enjoy my pension plan and cash in that golden ticket at the end. And I think there are a lot of Christians who are spiritually just lazy. They're satisfied with the mediocrity that they've come to. And there are also Christians who shrink away when it comes to persecution. It's not that, that we're going to deny Jesus or reject Him, hopefully. I think most of them would say, no, I wouldn't do that. But they are, they're really thinking about just backing up into the shadows and I just don't have to let everybody know that I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm just going to blend in. I'm not going to deny Him if somebody puts a gun to my head, but I don't have to volunteer the information that I have a relationship with Christ. I don't have to live it out for other people to see. And I think that's the temptation that was being faced for these Hebrew believers. And when we go to those places of fear of persecution, and so we withdraw. When we go to those places of, you know, I'm just going to kind of skid by. Hebrews is telling us that we are essentially doing the exact same thing that the people at Kadesh Barnea had done. We're refusing to go into the promised land and essentially we're saying, I'm going back to Egypt where things are comfortable. And when they made that decision in the book of Numbers, we saw last week how the glory of the Lord appeared. And it stopped them in their tracks right as they were ready to stone Moses and Aaron. And the Lord disciplined that generation. 
They completely lost the opportunity to experience His rest in the land. They missed out on God's blessings. And then over the next several years, every adult over the age of 20, except for Joshua and Caleb, died in the wilderness. I think I said 40 last week. I was wrong. Everyone over 20 died in the wilderness. And when they changed their mind the next morning and said, we'll obey now. Sorry, we were wrong. (laughs) Oops, that was a big mistake. Our bad. God says, no, no. You've fallen away. You've fallen to the side. And you cannot be restored to repentance, as Hebrews would state it. And so what did they do? They said, we're going to go in anyway. We're going to take the land because God gave it to us. We'll obey. And Moses says, God's not with you. And so they went in anyway. And what happened to them? They got obliterated. They ran back with their tails tucked between their legs. Those that survived... So to answer our first question, what does Hebrews chapter 6 mean by repentance? And I think that when we hear that phrase, repentance, what, what, what do our minds immediately go to? Salvation, justification, forgiveness. And certainly repentance is a part of that. Um, but the context of this warning is rooted in the book of Numbers and Israel's experience and their repentance at Kadesh Barnea. And when they tried repenting, God said, there's no second repentance for you. You're, you're, you're stuck. You're going to die out here in the wilderness. You, you don't get the rest of the land. Now, they had the benefits of the pillar of fire. They had manna from heaven. They, the elders being filled with the Holy Spirit. The experience at Mount Sinai. But how much more have you and I experienced those same blessings? But to an entirely new level in that we have received the Son. We have fully participated and experienced life in the Spirit. My friends, shall we escape God's discipline when those at Kadesh Barnea did not? And if we cross that line in the sand, and He doesn't tell us where that line is, thankfully, because then a lot of us would see how close we can get to the line. If we cross that line, Will we get the opportunity to repent and avoid God's heavy hand when the Israelites did not? More so than they, we are without excuse if we refuse to press on in the faith. To repent. The idea of repentance is to to turn around. When we're talking about salvation, repentance is I'm changing my mind about sin and I'm changing my mind about Jesus. And so I'm going to turn away from my sin and turn to the only one that can save me from my sin. And so I'm changing my mind about who Jesus Christ is and I'm trusting Him to save me from the sin that I'm turning from. But I believe that repentance is something that we still do, isn't it? When there's sin in your life, we confess our sin, but what's going on is you're saying, well, I'm changing my mind about this. I've fallen into this sin that's ensnared me. And so I repent in the sense that I'm turning away from it. And I'm I'm following Jesus. I I didn't lose my salvation and then have to repent again and and do that whole... But in the Christian life, there's confession and there's an attitude of repentance that should permeate our lives in that I'm always changing my mind about those sins that come up and I go, oh, how did that come get there? And so he's not talking about the repentance of salvation. He's not saying 
that you can get unsaved and then you have to repent and and come back again. But what he is saying is that there can, can come a point where God will discipline you because you are His child. But sometimes that discipline can come to the point where God says there's no return from this one. And sometimes that's just the consequences of real sin. Sometimes it's the consequences that God brings discipline in your life and says this is what you're going to have to deal with for the rest of your life. The consequences are permanent. And sometimes I believe those consequences are physical death because God does, and in Scripture we find instances of it. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians. You see it in Acts chapter 5-ish. Somewhere it says, Ananias and Sapphira. Sometimes God calls His people home because of their sin. Well, secondly, what does it mean by impossible? What does the word impossible mean in the Greek? Guess what it means? It means impossible. Exactly what you think it means. Exactly the way you've used it. Some of the Israelites tried going into the land away from disobedient, from away away from. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. They tried going into the land anyway, and they disobeyed God again. Some people have asked, okay, so is it is impossible to repentance? Does that mean it's impossible for God? The the point is is if if you continue to reject God and He's disciplining you, there is nothing you can do when you've crossed that line to change His mind. It is impossible for you to repent and to turn around because. God's discipline is final in some way or another. So some of the Israelites, they tried going back to the land and they got obliterated. And if your sluggishness in the faith tests God in the same way, what Hebrews says, when when Hebrews says that it is impossible, he means that it is impossible to restore you again. Just like it was impossible for the Israelites to go back in. And to drive his point home, he states that those who have fallen away are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Now, I think there's a a very literal sense, not a literal sense that they're really crucifying Jesus, but they were were, um, associating themselves with those who called out for His crucifixion. And there's also a figurative sense in which this is that He means this. You see, for these Hebrews... They, they, that he's writing to, there was some of them who were, uh, they were considering going back to Judaism. Or, or at least blending into the, the culture of Judaism. Persecution was getting intense. And, and there, were, there were some things that the, the, the Roman culture was tolerant of Judaism, but they weren't tolerant of Christianity. And so there was this temptation to kind of blend into Judaism because at least there, I can worship the one God and, and I'll be safe. And the author of Hebrews is telling them that if they choose to go back, then they were literally siding with those who had actually called out for the death of Jesus Christ. He's calling us out too. He basically says that when you choose mediocrity, when you choose to refuse to press on in the Christian walk, you are treating Jesus as a common criminal. We, we think of the cross as something we put on a necklace and we put on the wall and and it's this glorious thing that reminds us of what Jesus did. In that culture, to mention crucifixion was a swear word. To mention the cross was, was such a horrible thing you didn't talk about it in polite society. And, and so, what he's saying is you, you are holding Jesus in contempt 
And it's like you were standing there calling out with those to crucify Him. I hope that wasn't important. Didn't sound like water, so. There's one question that we should answer. What kind of judgment is in mind? And we've kind of partially answered that already, but he concludes with a very vivid agricultural illustration in verses 7 and 8. He says, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it's worthless and near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. Now again, a lot of us read that and what do our minds go? We see the last word and we automatically go to the gates of hell. That this is talking about the fires of hell. But I don't think that's what he's referring to. The illustration doesn't really lend itself to that idea. And again, he's not talking about losing your salvation in this passage. But you've all seen land that that's just overgrown with weeds it's it's never matt's because he used such great fertilizer and it's never danny's because he's just it's always perfect right okay you've, but you've all seen those places come to my house you'll see my garden and you'll see that um last fall i didn't really get out to finish the weeds after we picked the last tomatoes and so what am i going to do I, I can go out there and, and i can pull every single weed and take forever without any productivity I could send Anna out there and have Anna do it all for school. Yeah, we'll get ice cream later. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to torch it. I'm going to burn it to the ground. Those weeds are tall and thick. Why am I going to burn it? So that, so that I can cast the garden to the side and never grow anything there again because I'm absolutely destroying it? No, I'm, I'm making way for the next season. I'm, I'm going to burn it, I'm going to road till it, and I'm going to plant again. I'm going to start new. So I think the picture here is an apt one. Discipline is, is not casting someone to the fires of hell, but it's also not where you want to be. He disciplines us because He loves us and we're His children. And sometimes that discipline is a point of no return. When the Israelites came to the land, I think there's another picture that he's, he's drawing their minds to. Elise just read a passage for us from Joshua. And if you, if you heard the passage, what happened there? The people went to Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. Two mountains. And there's this natural amphitheater in between these two mountains. It's two large hills. And Mount Gerizim is green and lush. Uh, you could take sheep on there and, and just you, could, you would never have to go anywhere because there, there's food and, and anything you need. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful land. But across the valley, across this amphitheater, on Mount Ebal is what? Rocky, thistles, weeds, uh, nothing good. It's death. And so quite literally, the, the Israelites, they went and half of the tribes went and they sat on Mount Gerizim. Half of the tribes went over and they sat on Mount Ebal. And Joshua sat down in the middle of this valley and as Elise just read for us, he did what? He read the book of the law. And particularly what he noted for them was all the blessings and all the curses of the law. And it was a very vivid picture to the Israelites. If 
You obey me and you do this and this and this and this and you have this kind of relationship with me, then it's life for you. And the people would call out, we will do it! We will do it! And you could hear everyone in this amphitheater. And then he would read the curses of the law and say, if you do this and this and this, then you'll face discipline. And I will take you into captivity. I will destroy your land and make it a desolation. And the people over here would respond. And it was a picture of life and death. And I think part of what he's talking about as he gives this picture of, of a land covered with thistles and thorns is a picture of life and death and discipline because God loves us. And so I think that in part, that's what he's drawing their attention to. And my friends, when we neglect so great a salvation as, as, as what has been given to us, we have been warned that He will discipline us as His children. As, and if we go far enough, there are instances where God chooses to take a person home instead of allowing them to, to further bring Him shame. But I, but I think this is bigger than that. And I, I think what he's drawing their attention to is just not, it's not just physical discipline on earth. It's not just, oh, got in a car accident. Now, you know, I've got to deal with this now. It's not just losing my job. So, I mean, he uses those things to get our attention sometimes. Sometimes he, just, it's our con- he uses our conscience. For some of us, we need a lot more smacking around than others because it takes us some time. But it's more than just discipline here on earth. Additionally, I, I think this is, and, and this is one of the greatest tragedies for those who have become sluggish in their walk with Christ. We lose out on our rewards in the millennial kingdom and eternity. And, and sometimes we get this idea that, you know, I'm, I've got eternal life. I'm, I'm going to heaven. And, and yeah, there's going to be a thousand year reign of Christ. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be glorious. And we get to be a part of that. And, and it will be. But I want you to think about what you're going to do during that thousand years. What would you like to be doing during that thousand years? Under, was fishing? Yeah. Let's use that one. All right, because I, I think part of part of the thousand-year millennium is, is there's responsibility. And if you've been faithful now, he rewards then. He tells a couple parables of the talents. You've been faithful with a little, great is your reward. You've been faithful with this. I want you to take one city. Been faithful with this. I want you to rule over ten cities. And I think this millennium is going to be a glorious time. And, and I don't know if it's going to all be about, all about fishing. I think we'll be doing some. But let's use that for example. How, how great would it be that during the millennium, Craig gets the responsibility of being a fishing guide for... Yeah... That, that's what you want to do for a thousand years, isn't it? Yeah. You, you take the pick of where you want to go fishing. And, and you will get the opportunity to get, take people all over the world. That's your reward. That's your responsibility. Leading people in just the glorious work and love of fishing. But how horrible would it be for Craig to learn on the other side of the millennium 
after the rapture and after we all come back and we have a thousand years in which Jesus sets up His kingdom, for Jesus to sit down with Craig and say, Craig, you missed it. You got lazy. I got you building pole barns for a thousand years. Now, I don't know what our rewards are going to be like. I, I, you know, what I would love, I, I don't think when we're glorified Christians, glorified in our glorified bodies, we, no sin, that's one of the greatest things about the millennial period. We'll be here, we'll, we'll reign with Him for a thousand years. No sin. I don't think we're going to need to sleep, or if we do, it's just for fun. I, I would love to be a pastor during that thousand years. Just to be able to study God's Word and to teach God's Word or just to teach and, and to, to, to show people God's Word and with a mind that has an understanding of things like it goes far beyond what I have today. What an opportunity. But if I were to waste that and find, you know what, you're going to be digging ditches. And again, I don't think it's as simple as that. But you get the idea. For, and I think that's part of the tragedy here that Hebrews is talking about. I think there's a lot of us, he says, you are missing out on the blessings of the rest. The land is right there. And I want you to go in and it's right around the corner. But you've become sluggish and you are going to miss out on so many of the blessings that God has for you. Because we're satisfied with mediocrity. Well, Hebrews concludes this whole section with verses 9-12 through where he exhorts and he comforts and says, though we speak in this way, yet in, this, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust as so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. These last few verses, they're like a parent who's just, you ever severely chastised your child? You feel kind of bad about it, but they really needed it, and you just you let them have it. But it was necessary, and the discipline was necessary. But then you also found necessary right afterwards to do what? Come here. Let me give you a hug. There's comfort and they needed that discipline, but then you follow that up with a soft touch. And that's what the author of Hebrews is doing here. He's just severely chastised the Hebrews. Um, I don't know about you, but I've felt it. And so first, he expresses confidence in these Hebrew Christians. The same confidence that I have in you. He exhorts them to be diligent. And he points them to do the things that they've done in the past. Their, their love for one another, he points out. Their service, their work. He says, look, these, these, are, these show evidence of God's fruit in your lives. You keep on doing those things that you've done in the past and you keep on pressing forward in the future. There are better things to come. And, and the things and the fruit that we've seen God doing in our lives in the past, it should be motivation of, of more as we continue on and as we serve Him. So my friends, let us be faithful. Be faithful with what God has entrusted to you. He's gifted you in particular. And it doesn't look like everybody else. Let's, let, 
God's faithfulness in your life in the past be a motivation for continuing to press on now for the rest of the journey ahead. Friends, let us press on. Keep your eyes fixed on your Savior, the author and the finisher of your faith, the perfecter of your faith. And let us not press forward, trust, let us press forward growing weary, satisfying ourselves with mediocrity, but let us press forward trusting the One who has brought us into the light and who's given us His Spirit and His Word, who's let us taste of the heaven, gift of heaven. Let us follow Him into the great unknown and rejoice at the mighty things that He has done and He's going to continue to do. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank You for Hebrews. I, I thank You for this passage that You've shown to us. What, what a glorious warning. I know I've felt Your conviction in places. I trust that my friends here have too. We thank You for Your Word and what it does for us, for how it teaches us, how it challenges us. Oh Lord God, we, we pray that You would continue to do that work. That Your Spirit would continue to open up those closets that we don't want opened and help us to clean it out a little bit. A lot. And I pray that we would look a lot more like Jesus. I pray that we would reflect His image. And when He comes back, might we be those who would be excited for His return rather than those that look down in shame because we've wasted so much. Please use your church. Use each one of us for your glory and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.